Our Hebrew scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 11. In this passage, the prophet predicts that the once great dynasty of King David, son of Jesse, has rotted to the core and will soon be reduced to a stump. But not all hope is lost. Addressing a people with an uncertain future, Isaiah paints a portrait of a new kind of rule, coloring their imagination with images of pure peace and justice. As we wait for the long-expected king to be born into this world, may the words of the prophet also continue to shape our imagination. Then a shoot will sprout from the stump of Jesse. From Jesse's roots, a branch will blossom. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on me, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and reverence for Yahweh. You will delight in obeying Yahweh, and you won't judge by appearances or make decisions by hearsay. You will treat poor people with fairness and will uphold the rights of the lands downtrodden. With a single word, you will strike down tyrants. With your decrees, you will protect your people from evil. Justice will be the belt around this your waist. Faithfulness will gird you up. Then the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion cub, lion cub will graze together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like the ox. The baby will play next to the den of the cobra and the toddler will dance over the viper's nest. There will be no harm, no destruction, anywhere in my holy mountain. For as water fills the sea, so the land will be filled with knowledge of Yahweh. On that day, the root of Jesse will serve as a symbol to the peoples of the world. Nations will flock to you, and your home will be a place of honor. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 3 and is a rather peculiar reading for the Sunday of Peace. Since the prophet Isaiah, the people of God have waited for this promised kingdom of justice and peace, but it never came. But then seven centuries later, John the Baptist emerges from the desert claiming the kingdom is at last at hand. He begins the ministry preparing the eager people to enter the kingdom when it is revealed. However, when religious leaders start to come just for show, John flips their images of judgment to show them what it really means to prepare for the kingdom. May this reading prepare us for our own entry into the kingdom of heaven here and now. At this time, John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It was John that the prophet Isaiah described when he said, a herald's voice cries in the desert, prepare the way of our God, make straight the paths of God. John was clothed in a garment of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around the waist. Locusts and wild honey were his food. At that time, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region around Jordan were going out to him. John baptized them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to be baptized, John said to them, You brood of vipers, 
Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruit worthy of repentance, and don't pride yourselves on the claim. Sarah and Abraham are our ancestors. I tell you, God can raise children for Sarah and Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that is not fruitful will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I will baptize you in water if you have a change of heart, but the one who will follow me is more powerful than I am. I'm not even fit to untie the sandals of the coming one. That one will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire, whose winnowing fan will clear the threshing floor. The grain will be gathered into the barn, but the chaff will be burned in unquenchable fire. Andrew stood on the outskirts of the scene, watching people arrive from a distance. They came from every place you could imagine, places on the map, places in the soul. Like tributaries of the Jordan, they trickled in from Jerusalem and all over Judea, reaching the banks of the great river. Some were caught in a stronger current than others, pushing towards the front, their spirits aching to re-enter those primordial waters. Others, like Andrew, were slowed down by dams in the soul, all too willing to stay nearer the back. At the center of the crowd was the gravity drawing the flow of people down and back to their source. Dressed in camel hair with a leather belt around his waist, they streamed to the prophet, the herald, the Elijah, to John, the Baptist. Andrew watched with mixed, watched the mixed reactions of the people as they finally laid eyes on this ambassador from another world. And some ran faster. Some seemed to grow uncomfortable in their skin. Most, however, kept moving, continuing one step at a time to surrender to his gravity. And when they reached him, they would confess. They would confess who they always thought they were, the illusions they thought would make them happy, the fears that kept them in prison, and the things those deceptions had led them to do. They would bring these layers of falsehood out into the light, and once they could see them, they could let them go. With John's hands to guide them, they allowed the gravity to take them all the way beneath the waters of chaos, beneath the waters of oblivion, and then when all was lost, that strange midwife would draw them out to take their first gasping breath of new life. It was as though they were born again into a new world, a new kingdom. But Andrew also saw something else in the Baptist's eyes. Having served as a steward of the sacred waters for some time, John was also becoming something else, a steward of the pain. In his mind, he carried the stories that the people confessed, bad stories, in which they had been caught for so long. There were stories they'd been told by their families, stories they'd been told by their nations, stories they'd been told by their religion, stories in which they were cast as unclean, unloved, unworthy, unsafe, less than, or lacking. And with each 
confession of each story, the second-hand trauma weighed more heavily on John's heart. And Andrew was there the day it finally broke. The newer faces on the riverbank that day were Pharisees, and they were Sadducees. John, I mean, Andrew knew them well. They were the religious elite with their ornate, holier-than-thou robes and their long staffs, handy for spiritually bashing others into submission. Just the sight of them began to make Andrew feel defensive, uncomfortable. If they were here, he wasn't sure he wanted to be. They were the purveyors of oppressive stories, and at their hands, he had suffered. His spirit would find more peace elsewhere, he thought, away from these men. And he turned to leave when a sharp shout stopped him cold. And for an icy moment, he thought someone was shouting at him. So he turned to find that this was not the case. <coughs> hey, no, not you, John was declaring, clapping and pointing at the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were as surprised as Andrew. Not you. John knew why they'd come. In their posture, he could see their craving for one more notch on their spiritual belts, one more way to be better than all the sinners. But John and his beloved river were not about to play that part in their game. You men are a brood of vipers, John went on. Do you think that plunging your scaly skin beneath this water is going to make any kind of difference? That it's going to make God love you more? Andrew was shocked and uncomfortable but he dared not move away. One did not speak to a religious leader this way. One simply did not. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were just as taken aback, but that did not slow John down. John knew this was not a time to keep the peace. If you wanted to call that peace, this was a time to tell the truth. It's your lives that have to change, not your skin, he went on. If you want to be a part of this, first, you need to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Show me that you give a damn about the people that you have hurt or the will of the God you claim to serve. Show me one iota of humility, love, or generosity, and then, then, the river will welcome you. One of the leaders, he looked like the eldest, went red with rage. Puffing up his chest, he took a step towards the river, and opening his mouth, he was ready to put John in his place, but his chest deflated, and he stumbled back, coughing and sputtering, as John fiercely sent a spray of water in his direction. Do not lecture me, John warned, pointing a threatening finger his way. And do not think that you are beyond rebuke because you're children of Abraham and Sarah, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, you have no idea what that means. Those titles mean everything to the flesh and nothing to the spirit. These stones are closer to God's kingdom than you are. And John plucked a rock from the riverbed and pelted it at the water at the men's feet, causing them to stumble back another yard. At least they don't tell God's precious children that God is disappointed with them or ashamed of them. At least they don't use their office to manipulate people or pressure them to compromise themselves just for your own comfort. 
At least they don't abuse vulnerable people, people that trusted them and then hide behind a mask of righteousness. John trembled with rage. Andrew could see that some of the people who had only that morning been so eager to touch the waters were now deeply offended by John's words. He could see them dismissing John as rude and unruly. Others seemed to be praying to be made invisible. It seemed they would rather be literally anywhere but here right now in the midst of this conflict. Andrew, however, was feeling something else. What was it? If he had to put a word to it, it might be something like, I'm stuck. Unexpectedly, he felt like his life was flowing. Sure, in that moment, it might be flowing over rough, sharp rocks, but it was moving, and that felt incredible. He hadn't realized it until that moment, but he had been in a state of stagnancy, convincing himself that he was happy, that it was more peaceful. But all it ever really produced was mold and scum that suffocated his spirit. John went on, and Andrew felt as though he were speaking directly to him. It is fear, not God, that leads us to pretend everything is all right when it's not, and we are not called to prepare for the kingdom of fear. In the kingdom of God, there is only truth, so listen closely, because I'm going to tell you the truth. Are you ready? The religious leaders weren't sure what to say. Well, here it is. John went on. You are made of the same mortar of dust and spirit as the rest of us. And when that dust reclaims you and the spirit returns to its source, what will remain of the games you play? Those games of better than, smarter than, holier than, do you think they'll matter? Do you think you'll get to take them with you into the kingdom? He has shown you, O oh mortals, what matters. John recited from memory, and it is to bear the fruit of mercy, justice, and humility. You have to let the rest go, so get ready. Prepare yourselves. The axe is ever lying at the root of the trees, and every tree found not producing that fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is what awaits you, yes, even you, so get ready. Prepare yourselves. That is what I'm doing here. That is what this whole thing is about. I am baptizing people with water, watering their roots so that they might bear the fruit of love. I'm offering a rite of new birth, new hearts, a chance to get ready, to let go, to prepare ourselves for that kingdom that is at hand. Because mark my words, his voice dropped lower and he moved closer. The one coming after me will baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork will clear the threshing floor, and while the grain is gathered into eternal barns, the chaff of the games you play will be burned away into oblivion by unquenchable fire. In a huff, the Pharisees left. The Sadducees followed. Some of the people left, scandalized by the scene, but not Andrew. 
he's staying. For the first time, and he wasn't sure how long, the cacophony of anger and fear and confusion, the storm that he tried daily to push down and ignore, it calmed. For the first time, and he wasn't sure how long, he had hoped that tomorrow might be more peaceful than today. And some of that peace soaked into the present moment. He wasn't alone. There were others who remained, who moved closer to John. And it was those who remained through the difficulty, who were still there, ready the next day, when the stranger arrived from Galilee. You know, depending on what kind of Bible you're using, there are somewhere between 263 and 428 verses on peace. There's, a, there's prophetic poetry about wolves laying down with lambs. There are epistles about people living in peaceful harmony. But from all of these options, the lectionary decides that on the Sunday of peace, the best way to talk about said peace is through the story of a camel-hair-covered, Sadducee-splashing wild man raging against the institution. It is, we must admit, a bit of a paradox. So is peace. We may convince ourselves that because there are no conflicts, we are at peace. But the difficult reality is that the river that leads to peace must first move through unpleasant and unpeaceful rapids and jagged rocks. I'm reminded of uh, Madeline Lee Ingalls classic, A Wrinkle in Time. It's a story about a trio of celestial beings who bring a trio of children on this interdimensional quest to save the children's father. Early in their journey to prepare for the tribulations to come, the beings take the children to a distant planet to meet a medium. A being with the ability to show them all the wonders and magic of the universe through her crystal ball. And the companions enter her home anxious about what they might see when one of the beings instructs the medium to show the children their own planet, Earth, as it can be seen with the clarity that only distance affords. Lingle writes, the medium lost the delighted smile she had worn until then. Oh, why must you make me look at unpleasant things when there are so many delightful ones to see? And again, the being's voice reverberated through the cave. There will no longer be many pleasant things to look at if responsible people do not do something about the unpleasant ones. And with that, the medium sighed and showed them the shadow of evil that darkened the beauty of their earth. Advent is the season of looking at unpleasant and unpeaceful things. Last week we looked at hope, not in a way that was trite or sentimental, but to name the reality that hope is often hard to come by. We looked at it in order that we might be mindful of our lack, that we might look boldly into the darkness and light a candle, however small, against it. And this week we talk about peace. Advent, like 
the medium, like John the Baptist, bids us to look with complete honesty at the darkness that is our lack of and yearning for peace. To practice Advent, Tish Warren writes in the New York Times, is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we feel in the meantime. We dwell in a world still wracked with conflict, violence, suffering, and darkness. Advent holds a space for our grief, and it reminds us all, in one way or another, that we are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness, impatience, or selfishness. We want so badly to race to Christmas, to race to hope, to race to peace, to light the candles and then sing the songs. But if we do that, without first traveling through Advent, then the hope we think we've found tends to wither quickly. And the peace we think we've found proves false. The only way for true light to be born for us is for us to first stumble through that darkness, lighting one hard-won candle at a time. This is the paradox. The only way for peace to be born is through the unpeaceful struggle with that which is wrong. This is difficult for us because we are far too often satisfied with false peace, the careful avoidance of unpleasantness, even if others are hurting, even if we are hurting. I wonder how many of John's followers were like anxious mothers at a Thanksgiving table, wishing desperately for everyone to just stop talking about unpleasant things, to be nice, and to get along. The problem is, of course, that this facade of peace is fueled by fear, not love. We're afraid that if we're actually honest, others might not love us as much. We're afraid that if we get into it, we might not have what it takes to get through it. The fruit of which is a false peace that keeps the fear and the pain in darkness, and darkness is the only place where fear and pain can flourish. That's not the way it has to be. C.S. Lewis once gave an address in which he taught, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with lesser things when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. John recognized this. He recognized how easily pleased we are with stagnant, false peace, and he glimpsed a different way of being, a way that was free, that was fully alive, an offer of a holiday at sea, and he took it. But when he did, I'm afraid he made a bold move into another trap that keeps us from true peace. And that's the myth that peace can be achieved by calling out our enemy's flaws until they are shamed into repentance. Let's call this, for the sake of familiarity, the Facebook approach. <laughs> it's a game of anger and blame, of guilt 
and of shame. But the thing is, humans have an interesting relationship to shame. It seems they either internalize it all and learn to hate themselves, or we build up such an armor against it that we couldn't possibly see ourselves as in the wrong. Either way, it's an ineffective mode to transformation and a dead end when it comes to peacemaking. Do you think that the Pharisees and Sadducees walked away that day any more prepared to enter the kingdom of God? I'm not saying that people will always respond well to attempts at peacemaking, but do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees even had a chance after the way John treated them? The human ego deals in judgment and separateness. They are the villain, making decisions I would never make. Call them a brood of vipers, loudly in front of everyone, it whispers. They deserve it. But in the spirit, we hear a different voice. In the kingdom, we are gifted eyes to see that we are made of the same stuff. And that if subject to the same life situation as the other, we may well have made the same choices. We may well have hurt the same people. But for the grace of God, the spirit says, there go I. In peacemaking work, this is called a posture of non-judgment, and it's very different from just being nice. It's a posture rooted firmly in empathy for the other, compassionate understanding of the story that brought them to where they are, knowing it could not have been otherwise, and a willingness to meet them there with love and forgiveness. It's knowing that, but for a roll of the cosmic dice, it could just as easily be you sitting in their place. Forgive them, Father, Christ calls out about those seeking to end his life. They know not what they do. The path to peace is marked by courage and honesty. That is true, but it is also marked by radical empathy and undeserved kindness. This can be difficult work. And indeed, for good reason, we are tempted to leave it when things get difficult. Like the Israelites in the desert, looking back longingly at Egypt, false peace begins to look very appealing on the way to authentic peace. But it's those who remain, those who lean in, who have the courage to tell the truth, it is those who will be remaining and those who will be prepared when the stranger finally arrives from Galilee. It will be those ready to recognize peace. Children of God, this is the long labor through which peace must be born into this world. And that is what Advent is, the long labor the birth pangs of a new world. And at the end, you and I might finally be able to meet that precious hope, peace, joy, and love that have been born to us. May it be so.